Well, hello, and welcome to our class on First and Second Peter. My name is Bob Lawrence. I'm one of the Bible class teachers at the Anchorage Church of Christ, and I'm glad you've chosen to join us. This week, we turn to First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And you know, this is April. We have entered into tax season, and later today, I'll spend some time working on my taxes for this year. I'll be married, filing jointly, and so I'll spend a lot of time this afternoon thinking about what does it mean to be a citizen? And what does it mean to be an employee? And what does it mean to be a spouse? Uh, and it's, it's perhaps good timing because though that is exactly the three topics that Peter covers in today's passage in which he talks to us about what it means as a follower of Christ to be a citizen, to be a worker, and to be a spouse as a follower of Christ in today's world. Well, we'll get to the passage in just a minute. But for those of you who have not been with us the last few weeks, let's do a quick review of what we've learned so far in 1 Peter. You'll remember that the letter of 1 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter, and he was writing this letter probably from Rome. He euphemistically says that he's writing it from Babylon uh, there in uh, towards the end of the letter. And he's writing the letter to a group of Christians who are not in Rome, but are spread out in a what he calls the diaspora, specifically the Christians who were spread out over modern-day Turkey in Pontus and Cappadocia and Galatia and around to Asia and Bithynia. And you can almost just draw a circle around modern-day Turkey. And that encompasses the area that this letter was meant to be circulated. And the main message that Peter gives can be summed up in two of the passages that you see towards the end of the letter. The first of those two passages is chapter 4, verse 12, when Peter says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so you hear in that Peter's admonition saying, don't be surprised if you, as a follower of Christ, are misunderstood, if you are maligned, if you are persecuted. Don't be surprised by that, uh, but be strengthened by that because you're sharing Christ's sufferings. And the second passage is from chapter 5, verse 10, where Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while, after all this is over, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so you hear in that Peter saying that one day God is going to make the world right again, and he will make things right again for you. So hang in there. The suffering, the mistreatment, the being reviled by people in your community, that's temporary. What God is doing through you right now is changing not only you, but the entire culture and the entire community. He's changing the entire world. And so that's where last week we got the reminder where Peter says that you, you should remember who you are and whose you are, he says, because you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's possession, you Conduct your lives among the Gentiles in such a way that even if they accuse you of doing evil, they will glorify God on the day that he visits us. And so that's where Peter probably thinks back to 
what he heard, at least on one occasion, on the Sermon on the Mount, and probably many times, when Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that can't be hidden. So let your light shine before men so that when others see your good deeds, they will praise your Father who's in heaven. Well, that's what Peter has taught us up to this point, is reminding us who we are and whose we are and how that has an effect on how we live. And so we turn to today's passage where Peter talks about, well, what does it mean as a follower of Christ, as a chosen person, a part of this holy priesthood, someone who uh, is God's possession, how are we to live as citizens, as workers, as uh, even family members or spouses in our own families? How are we to live? Well, I think it's helpful to know before we get into the passage itself, a little bit about the culture into which Peter is writing this letter. And so it's, it's helpful to put yourself into the place of some of the very first readers of this letter. Remember that this letter was written from Rome and it was written into a Roman culture or Roman world. And it's important to understand that the Roman culture was based on a concept of power that, that was oppressive, that was from the top down. The rulers of Rome, the Caesars, and eventually the emperors would control enti the entire empire uh, under, a, under their power and under oppression. That's how they took over other countries. It was a militaristic uh, expansion of their, of their empire. And when they overtook other countries, they would enslave large numbers of people. Julius Caesar is said to have killed probably over a million Gauls, and then he enslaved a million more. And so the Roman economy was based on this enslavement and this trading of human souls, people who had been acquired in battle or people who had, uh, had debts uh, for other people. They would become enslaved of those to whom they were indebted. And, and so the, the rule of the entire Roman Empire was based on this idea of power and retaining power. And it started at the top. The emperor was the supreme leader, the one with the most power. But at the time this letter was written, the emperor who was in power was Nero. Nero, the, the emperor who became emperor at age 17 and then would grow into this narcissistic, egotistical bully who killed his mother, killed his wives, killed off his brother, tried to kill off his rivals, and thought of himself as the uh, the the most enviable person in all the empire. This, is the, this was the ruler of the entire Roman Empire. And you may know that Peter eventually will be executed by this very emperor. But that's the way the Roman Empire was. It was oppressive from the top down. And that uh, oppression uh, trickled down into the workforce. And so uh, people who owned businesses or ran large farms or villas or people who were in uh, building trades, you know, they would have this whole host of people who were, in essence, slaves or workers who worked for them, and they exercised their authority with this oppressive, powerful hand. And that concept of what it meant to control and to have power would trickle even into the family, where men are the ones who maintained control over the family. And the whole society was built under this idea of the men retaining control of the family, control of their property, control of businesses, control in politics. 
and women were oppressed. Now, the women of this period of time actually had many freedoms that they did not have even 100 years before or 200 or 300 years before. And so they were gaining new rights at that time. But the women were very much uh, kept at arm's length when it came to participation in the political process. Women could not vote. They could at this time own property and even run businesses but they could not retain the rights for control of that property themselves. Every woman had to have, in essence, a male who served as the representative or the power of attorney over a particular estate. And women, unless they were the only person, the only child left of a couple, and there were no boys in the family, uh, women could not be heirs of a family fortune or a family property. And so they were, they were in many ways oppressed. And that's the way life, life was. Now, to some people, that, uh, that show of power and that show of force was attractive. In fact, uh, consider the perspective of Tom Holland. Uh, Tom Holland is a historian. Now, for those of you who are perhaps teenagers and happen to be watching Bible class today, this is not Tom Holland, the star of the Spider-Man movies. This is the other Tom Holland the one who is the historian of Roman and ancient Greek and Persian times. And in this Tom Holland, uh, who studied ancient Rome and these, these cultures of antiquity, he, when he was very young, grew up as a Christian. And he remembers in Bible class that he was enamored not by God or by Jesus or the things that he read in the Bible. He was enamored by these other cultures. He says that he was in some way drawn in and seduced by power. He, uh, first of all, he says that he was enamored by the dinosaurs, you know, things like Tyrannosaurus Rex. But then as he grew up, he became fascinated by these cultures of Athens and Rome and how they expanded across the world. And for a time, as a historian, he bought into the prevailing view that the modern culture, our modern systems of politics and business, that those are founded in some ways on this powerful history and foundation that was Rome and Athens. But as he studied it, he found something that surprised him. Consider what he says about those cultures. He says, the years I spent writing these studies of the classical world, living intimately in the company of Leonidas and Julius Caesar, only confirmed in me my fascination. For Sparta and Rome, even when subjected to the minutest historical inquiry, did not cease to seem possessed of the qualities of an apex predator. They continued to stalk my imaginings as they had always done, like a tyrannosaur. Yet great carnivores, however wondrous, are by their nature terrifying. The longer I spent immersed in the studies of classical antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. And so Tom Holland points out that what at one time fascinated him about this Roman Empire, which actually drew him away uh, and caused him to give up being a Christian, that that power of Rome became disillusioning when he realized that this, this was not his culture. This was, a different, this was a different culture than what he had come to accept as moral and ethical. The Roman culture was one based on power in which the, the supreme seat of power, the emperor, ruled with an oppressive uh, hand. Uh, and in Rome, if you went before the emperor and said, I am, I am weak, I need protection, he would say, great, I'll enslave you. You know, that was the type of 
power that they wielded. And that power trickled down through the governors and then through those governors in the regions into the local political leaders. And then it trickled into the workforce and into those owners of uh, businesses and merchants and farms. And, and this, this idea of power trickled into those uh, forms of uh, business. And then that ended up seeping its way into the homes of people so that homes were run under this idea of power, where a male figure, the paterfamilias, would rule uh, if he were a kind person. He would rule with a heavy hand to make sure the household was run appropriately. But if he were a crooked person using unethical means, he would maintain control over his family. And he would oppress the, even the women in the family, whether meaning to or, or not. And it's into that setting that you can imagine a group of people who had chosen to follow Christ sitting around a small room and into that room trickles a message. It's a letter rolled up and handed to the people by a man named Silas. You, you remember the stories of Paul and Silas. Silas walks in with this parchment and says, I have a letter to read to you. And that's the passage that we get to read today. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you 
are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, today's passage calls us to a different way of living in a culture that is oppressive to citizens or oppressive to workers or oppressive to people in the family. And Peter says there's a better way. And notice that most of this passage is focused on the meaning and the use of one particular word. And so I I want to pause and do just a quick word study so you know what the word means. And then let's apply it to this passage and see what you can find in this passage that helps with even what you're dealing with this, this week. Well, the word to pay attention to is the word that's translated in this particular passage as be subject to or submit. It's the word hupotasso. Now, hupotasso means to intentionally, voluntarily arrange yourself under someone else. It's not a forced submission. It's not a enslavement. It's a, it's a word that just means that I, out of my own choosing, voluntarily, I uh, place myself or arrange myself under you. I hupotasso. And that's the word that is used here when he says, first of all, hupotasso or arrange yourself under the leadership of the emperor as supreme. Now, isn't that interesting that Peter writing, maybe not fully knowing that his days were coming to an end, but knowing full well that if they did, it would probably be under the hands of the emperor. Peter says, you honor the emperor as supreme. And not only emperor, but you honor the governors who are there to punish those who do evil and reward those who do good. For this is God's will. Now, why would he say that? Now, at first, that may not make sense, especially now that you've heard a little bit of the oppressive nature of the Roman Empire. Why would Peter say that this is how Christians were to behave? It's because that's what he learned from Jesus. And it will make sense, especially for those of you that work in a, uh, a setting like a state government or federal government. Those of you who have ever worked in that setting know that really the work done in, uh, whether it's uh, municipal, state, or federal government, the day-to-day work is mundane, uh, day-to-day problem-solving just to keep things running. Most of the people who are working in some form of municipal, state, or or federal government are just trying to help get done what needs to for the community itself to run. And so the governor's job, or in this case, even the emperor's job, is just to make sure that there is a system of roads that is functional, that the potholes are filled. But at the same time, we have to get kids into school. And so how do you make sure that the money used to pay for the repairing of the roads doesn't take money away from the education of children or the health care provided to people within the community? How is it that you make sure that, the, uh, that food is available for everyone you know, within the community and that it's not inappropriately diverted uh, from people who really need it to those who have plenty and aren't willing to share? How is it that you punish those who 
are criminals and who violate the rights of others? And how do you make sure that your justice system is not inadvertently creating more criminals by concentrating people into a setting where they're teaching each other how to be uh, more criminal? How is it that you uh, have a criminal justice system that is restorative and, and teaches people to be uh, better citizens? How do you keep all of these different things in, in balance? That's really what most of government work is about. Staying up late at night in meetings, trying to balance the rights of some people uh, against the rights of others, and making sure that these interests are fully aligned and that really each of us are able at night to go back to our own homes and sit around with our own families and enjoy life in a particular community. That's the work of government. Well, you can imagine that in a government setting, there is a lot of noise. And that noise is created by people who pushing their own interest will, will push their way into a audience with the governor or back in this period of time with the emperor and try to have their interest advanced. And they will use uh, manipulative means and oppressive means and cunning means to try to gain that power. And so the day-to-day -day work that really needs to get done to make sure that the community is functioning properly is interrupted by this constant noise of different interests that are trying to push their way in. Well, imagine what it's like for a governor or a leader in a municipal area to have a group of people walk in who are followers of Christ and they walk in not to push any one interest, but they walk in with one message. What can I do to help? What can I do to make this community the best community that it can be? Peter says that for people to do that, to intentionally place themselves under the authority and the leadership of the local government, it's, it has a silencing effect of all of that noise. It instantly silences the foolish talk of people who are agnostic, who are ignorant, and who just don't know what really needs to happen in that community. And that's Peter's point, is that a group of people who are followers of Christ are to be different and are to put themselves in subjection or to intentionally arrange themselves under the leadership of the local government because that's the way God set it up. And they do that because that's the way Jesus did it. And then secondly, he says in the same way, this applies in the workplace. Now he uses a term here that doesn't mean slave. It means more of a, a household servant. So it could mean uh, a slave in the Roman Empire. In a modern day sense, it probably refers more to what we would think of as an employee. And Peter says to the employees, you, hupo tasso, you voluntarily arrange yourself under the master over your business or your work and do it regardless of whether or not they are good and treat you well or if they're crooked, he says, and treat you poorly. And, and he says, why do you do this? Because if you voluntarily walk in as a follower of Christ and your message is different than any other employee, not demanding, I demand to be treated this way or that way. But he says, you, you work in such a way that even if you're accused of doing what's wrong and you're, you're punished for doing what is right, even if that happens, you can rejoice because that's the way they treated Jesus. You see, the interest here is at the, at the uh, civic level, 
that the Christians in that community are a part of what God is doing to change that entire community. The Christians who are in the workforce are there to help change the lives of the people with whom they work and the people for whom they work. And so you be the kind of person that even if you're punished for doing what is right, that is not a problem for you. It would only be a problem for the employer when they recognize that they might lose you because you, as a follower of Christ, are one of their most valuable, valuable assets. And in that way, Peter says, you are like Christ. You treat them the same way Christ treated you. He who bore your sins in his body so that you could die to sin and live for doing what is right. You do the same thing within the place that you work. You bear the burdens of that Jesus bore of putting on that culture and doing what is right with the idea that in the end, everyone is changed into doing things right. And ultimately, the hope is that people follow Christ and become righteous. And then Peter says, this is the same principle in the home too. He uses the term likewise, meaning we're still on the same subject. This idea of voluntarily arranging your life under someone else applies to wives. And he says, wives, voluntarily arrange yourself under the leadership of your husbands. And he's especially interested in those cases where, like some of you, you are married to someone who is not a Christian, who does not share the same faith. And Peter says, it is so important that you not walk out of that situation, but rather you're voluntarily arranging yourself under the other person is with the interest of saving their soul. Because even if they're not won over by the word itself, they will be won over by your life, by the conduct of your life. This is stretching back to what he said earlier in the letter when he said, conduct yourselves in such a way that others will see what you do and eventually glorify God. And he says to those of you who are women, uh, you be uh, uh, attractive to your husbands, not with what you wear or because of your outward beauty, but you display that unfading beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit, the spirit of Christ in you, and let your husbands see that. And he says that will, in some cases, actually be what wins over your husband to a faith in Christ. And then he turns to the husbands and he says, basically in the same way, husbands, you uh, live with your wives. This translation tries to capture the meaning because he doesn't use the same word hupotasso here. He actually says, you live with your wives in a way that is knowing or knowledgeable. And the point there, even though Peter uses a different word, is to say husbands in the same way that you do for the emperor or the governors, in the same way that employees do for employers or slaves do for masters in the same way that uh, women uh, do for their husbands. In the same way, husbands, you live in an understanding way. In other words, you stand under or in a way that recognizes that your wives are the weaker vessel. And I want to pause here because when you read that through and only use the filter of kind of a modern understanding of what that term weaker vessel might mean, you may be distracted. Peter is not here using a what has been called benevolent sexism, uh, where he's saying those women who are fragile or weak need protection, and so husbands, you know, you protect them, which is sort of 
a kind way of still saying that women are weaker and not as uh, powerful as men. And so that's been called a benevolent sexism. That's not what Peter's doing here. Peter's recognizing that women in that culture had a weaker position. They were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to, uh, to conduct business beyond their own life. They could not be heirs of, uh, of the inheritance in their family. They were still kept in this weaker position. And so Peter says, husbands, you, just like a, uh, a vessel that is oppressed in, in your society, you get under that and you lift them up. So it's still that voluntary idea of putting yourselves under someone else, but in a little different way here, in which he says to the husbands, you treat these women in your life, not as the culture treats them. In the culture, they cannot be heirs, but not so in your household. You treat your wives as co-heirs of the grace of life. And so you see Peter's message in each of these scenarios that he gives, whether we're talking about living in a community or working in a particular business or even in our own homes, the relationship between husbands and wives. He says the relationship should be that where this, this virtue of hupo tasso, of voluntarily placing ourselves under others as servants, becomes characteristic of those who are followers of Christ. And at first you might wonder, well, why would he do that? Why would he do that in a culture which was so oppressive? How, how could anybody expect that living that way would end up changing, changing the culture? I don't even know if, if Peter fully knew how God was going to change the world. What I can say is that Peter knew Jesus. Peter knew that it was the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that taught him to write this letter to those people to say, I can't tell you how this is going to happen, but this is the way things work in God's kingdom. God's people put on as a cloak this freedom that allows them to go in to a community and say, how can I make this the best community that it can be? It gives them the ability to walk into a workplace and say, how can I make this the best workplace it can be? It allows them to walk into a family and say, how can we make this home? The best place that it can be. Peter says we don't put on a cloak of freedom and use that as a cover for doing evil. Instead, we use our freedom to display uh, service the way that Christ did. And even Peter won't be able to tell you how this happens, but there's no question the power of a group of people living this way, the power that has over the communities the workplaces, and the families in which they live. Because what happens when you follow out history is the Roman Empire fades away, but not so of that group of people that lived within the Roman Empire that were of another kingdom, who, like Jesus, had entrusted themselves to God. That community still survives, and you're a part of that, of that community. You remember I told you about Tom Holland, the historian Tom Holland uh, a few years ago wrote an article in which he described his walking away from Christianity because he was enamored by this power of Rome. And then he became disillusioned when he realized that power of Rome was oppressive. It, it, it shared none of the virtues that he said he had come to appreciate in his own culture. 
And that brought him back to Christianity in which he said, you know, there's something about following Christ that is the foundation of our culture even today. This is how he concludes his article in The Statesman back in 2016. He says, today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. There's something that Peter wrote in this letter that is powerful and has long survived any of the empires that were present at the time that this letter was read by the very first readers. And that's why it was copied and shared with you even today. So may God bless the reading of his word. And I will leave a few questions on the screen uh, just to get the conversation going in your own home or own setting today. Uh, so take some time to go back into this passage of 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13, go all the way to chapter 3, verse 7, and spend some time thinking about how these words apply to your own life today. And I'll see you next week.